Paul's wish is finally coming true in this chapter. He is on his way to Rome. When he was in Ephesus and he gathered the people together, he said, I have purpose in my heart to go to Jerusalem, and I know that after this I'm on my way to Rome. He was excited about going to Rome because Rome was not just a tourist attraction at that time. It was the capital of the world. If the gospel could get to Rome, it could easily spread anywhere. The only thing is that Paul had no idea that he would go this way. He went as a prisoner, though he didn't expect to go as a prisoner. He thought that he would go as a preacher. And indeed, he was a preacher, but he's going on a prison boat. And chapter 27 is the story of the storm and all the things that befell Paul the Apostle as he took his journey now to Rome. As we remember, Paul spent two years as a prisoner in Caesarea waiting trial, having three trials. He finally appealed to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. Now he's on his way to Rome, where he will spend two years in prison. However, the gospel will be just as effective while Paul is a prisoner as while Paul was free. Nothing really will change. He will have an impact in the prisons of Rome and the people who are around him as prisoners, even some of the house churches in Rome, as he shares the gospel. In fact, Paul the Apostle said, I suffer trouble as an evildoer to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Though I may be in prison, I can still be effective. We're in correspondence with a fellow who came to me a few weeks ago. I take it he has recently become a Christian. And before the time he became a Christian, he has done some things that warranted him to have a jail sentence, and he's down in the southern part of our state, going to having actually being a year in prison. We prayed before he left, and we're writing letters to him, and we're asking some of the people down there to visit him. But my prayer for him is... Maybe off base as it was, wasn't that God necessarily would comfort him, though I know he will, and I prayed for that, but that God would give him a great prison ministry. He's with them. A lot of things can be accomplished through his life. The word of God is not bound. In fact, Paul said, I'm in jail, but I want you to know something, Philippians. What has happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel. That was Paul's mentality all throughout. Chapter 7, 27, reads like a ship's log. And Luke is writing this chapter. He's with Paul because he says we throughout this chapter. He's traveling, and it was kind of neat to have your own personal doctor with you. That's what Luke was. This chapter is considered one of the finest ancient documents of sea travel, if, if not the finest, that are in existence. In chapter 27, verse 1, we read, And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan, or, uh, yeah, the Augustan regiment. In other words, he was over a hundred men. So entering a ship of the Adramitium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Now, probably, Paul was the only Roman citizen on that boat, because this was a prisoner ship. 
And it was filled with those people who were not Roman citizens, slaves who were condemned to die. They were on their way to Rome, no doubt, to land up as mock gladiators in the huge arena there in Rome to be fed to the wild beasts. And at that time, there was a constant stream of humanity going into that huge coliseum where people would applaud as the wild beasts would tear the flesh from the victims. So this is a hopeless group of people. What an opportunity for this apostle. We're not going to read it all tonight. But some tremendous things happen with the people that are on this boat. And God allows Paul to shine brightly as a light in a very hopeless situation. Now we read in verse 3 that they landed in Sidon, which is up in present-day Lebanon. And you can notice that Paul had some liberty as a prisoner, that uh, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. I have always loved that verse, simply because Paul the Apostle, though he was an apostle, though he was a very effective man of God, needed encouragement. Needed fellowship. And he needed the refreshment of the other saints. You know, Paul's wondering, Oh, God, what are you going to do? I've been two years in Caesarea. I'm going to Rome. What will happen to me? To end up in Sidon on the way in a ship filled with prisoners. To have a Christian brother. Those who have been in prison or those who have been in pain, like the fellow we just mentioned who now lives in Huntington Beach, They know what it's like to have a Christian come and say, hey, God bless you. God be with you. Let me pray for you. Let me be here and just touch base with you during your time of pain. Paul, no exception. Verse 4, when we had put out to sea, from there we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we, le- we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. Unless you have a map, these are just a bunch of weird names. You have no idea what he's talking about. But it is fascinating to take a map and just go through and see how they sailed. You notice one thing about ancient sailing. They always came close to the coast. They never took a beeline and went right out in the middle of the ocean to sail to Italy. They would go up the coast of Israel, the coast of Lebanon, Asia Minor, because if there were problems, they would be close to land. They did not have radios in those days. They didn't have radar or navigational equipment. They didn't have fancy compasses. It was mostly visual sailing. And so they're going up the coast and stopping at different places along the way. Verse 6 is a change. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy And he put us on board. We think that this was probably a ship carrying wheat from the Nile area of Egypt, northern Africa, stopping at port, taking some more cargo, dropping some off as well, and then sailing on to Rome. When the prisoner ship stopped, the centurion found a ship going to Rome, and he managed all of the prisoners to get on board and sent them on their way. When we had sailed, verse 7, slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmone. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. And when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men... I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss. 
not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, when it says it's past the fast, it means that it's past Yom Kippur. So it's uh, getting on toward the end of fall, the beginning of winter, when they didn't sail anymore. And Paul says, listen, uh, I'm figuring this thing out. It's not a good time to sail. We're going to be in danger if we do. Nevertheless, the centurion, verse 11, was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, not Arizona, different place. This one came first, no doubt. A harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and the northwest and winter there. And when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. I can sympathize with this group of adventurers on this boat. I don't know how much seagoing activity you've had. Some of you have been out to sea. When I was a boy, my dad used to take us down to Newport Beach late at night, and he'd put us on a fishing boat. And he wanted to take his kids deep sea fishing. He thought, oh man, my kids are going to love it. It's going to be an adventure. I'm really going to treat my kids. Well, I wasn't used to the sea. And all I remember is going back and forth and back. And we had to go way out to sea and sleep on the boat overnight. Get up early in the morning wherever we were at and go deep sea fishing. All I remember is that I lost my cookies so many times on that thing. I hated deep sea fishing. So when I read about the storms that are coming and the winds blowing contrary, man, I can relate. There comes a time, man, when it's just, hey, sailing, forget it. Get me there some other way. In those days, the sea was an ominous force. It was dangerous. As I said, they didn't have navigational equipment. It was seen as this mysterious, ominous, dangerous place to be. If you had no visibility, if a cloud cluster came in or if it was fogged in, you were stuck. You couldn't go because, again, it was all by visibility and uh, no engine and so forth. And the scripture attests to the whole idea of the sea being this ominous force. Um, Remember Jonah when he was sailing and he was going up the coast. The guys who were the experts, they had been out to sea because of the storm that the Lord sent. It says they grew exceedingly afraid and they started tossing the cargo over the board, over the ship. In the book of Revelation, the beast comes out of the sea. Jude describes false prophets as raging waves of the sea. And of course, that could explain part of the idiom in Revelation where it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and there was no more sea. The idea of danger. The idea of that mysterious uh, unknown. Um, In verse 14 it says, But not long after a tempestuous headwind arose called the Eurocliden, or Eurocliden, or however you want to pronounce it. It's a strange term. Now you say, what does that mean? It simply means it was a tough wind. It comes from two Greek words, Euros, which means east wind, and, and Kludos, which means waves. It was this northeast wind that would come off Crete and endanger vessels. And it would blow waves over the ship, and many ships were ruined in that area. And uh, what's interesting, and in verse 13, things seemed to be so smooth, the soft wind was blowing, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this tempestuous headwind called the Eurocliden. 
I want you to notice something that I noticed today in reading this. And that is there's a little word, and I like to look at little words like conjunctions. We don't think they're important, but they are. The first verse begins with and. The second verse, so. The third verse, and. The fourth verse, when. The fifth verse, and. Um, ninth verse, now. Uh, Eleven, nevertheless. Twelve, and. But verse 14 says, but. There's a change. Everything's going good, sort of a little bit of problems, but nevertheless, therefore, we kept going and things seemed great until all of a sudden there's this word but. In other words, there's a change. There's a negative conjunction. And so when the ship, verse 15, was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. In other words, we just let her go. Verse 13 and 14, the difference between them, illustrate a graphic point. In fact, it's a lot like life. It seems the trials, call them storms of life, come out of nowhere, come suddenly. When everything's going so smoothly, all of a sudden, there can be an instant change. You're going down the road, things are great, and all of a sudden you have your own Euroclida. A sudden, tempestuous headwind. It's not with you, it's against you. It comes out of nowhere. It comes suddenly. And it hits you hard. Um, Life is like that in general. You know, we make plans, don't we? Like these guys made plans. They made their plans. They knew where they were going. But the plans didn't turn out the way they wanted them to. We make plans. We have visions. We have dreams. We choose our roads in life. And so often... Different things happen that cause us to go down different roads. One person said life is a constant process of getting used to the things you never expected. We don't like change. Well, let, let, me, let me rephrase that. We like change if it is controlled by us. If we can make the decision to change, we're happy. But if changes come and we lose control, mm, doesn't set well with us. We resist change. But so often, when you see change in the right perspective... The resistance to it seems so foolish. God had a desire for this group. And though Paul, he could have gotten real upset. God, why? But he trusted the plan of God. He knew that the changes were there for a purpose, as you'll see as we go on. I wanted to read something to you, though. The whole idea of how change and resistance to it seems foolish when in the right perspective. Back in 18... 29, January 31st, a letter was written to President Jackson that said, President Jackson, the canal system of this country is being threatened by the spread of a new form of transportation known as the railroad. The federal government must preserve the canals for the following reasons. Number one, if boats are supplanted by railroads, serious unemployment will result. Captains, cooks, drivers, hostlers, repairmen, lock tenders will be left without means of livelihood not to mention the numerous farmers now employed in growing hay for horses. Number two, boat builders would suffer and tow-line whip harness makers would be left destitute. Three, canal boats are absolutely essential for the defense of the United States of America. In the event of an unexpected trouble or war with England, the Erie Canal would be the only means by which we could ever move the supplies so vital to waging modern war. As you may well know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines. 
which in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock, and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speed. (laughs) Sincerely yours, Martin Van Buren, Governor of New York. What would that fellow have said had he seen a Concorde fly overhead? You see, seen in the right perspective, if you were to resist change, you'd resist progress. And God had the progress of the gospel in his mind. Life is not always smooth sailing, as some people think it is. It's not always fair skies, Mediterranean weather. We don't like it when there's a change, but there are change. You can't help it. And often those changes are like a hurricane. They come instantly. They come heavily. Well, let's go on. Look back, in fact. Look back at verse 9. Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them. Now, listen to this advice. Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. How did they respond to that? Favorably? No. Verse 11. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. What does a preacher know about sailing? And you can picture the scene. Here comes this little old guy. Now, I would advise that you don't do this. And here you have an expert sailing crew, the helmsman, the owner, say, don't listen to him. What does he know? He's, a, he's on board a prison ship. I think we can make it. I think we have the wherewithal. We've done this before. So the centurion naturally listened, listened to these folks and not this preacher. And verse 13, it says, The south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea they sailed close by Crete. There are many people who are just like that centurion. They spurn spiritual counseling because, hey, things aren't going bad in my life. There's a soft wind blowing. Things seem great, and they do for a while until the storms come. I watch this so often with people as they come in for counseling. I'll never forget years ago, a couple came in my office. They wanted to be married. She was a believer. He was an unbeliever. I said, I I see you having an unequal yoke. I won't do it. He came to know Christ, and he was about two weeks old in the Lord. She came to me again and said, we want to get married now. I said, I think it's great that he's a believer. I give him a little bit of time to grow, however. That's my recommendation. I won't perform the service, and if you're asking my advice, I'd let him grow. He's going to be the spiritual leader in your home. Now, do you think in two weeks he has the wherewithal to lead you? She said, definitely. All right, God can do anything. God's miraculous. But I still recommend that you wait. We won't wait. You have no right. All right, you're right. I'm not going to lord over your faith. Whatever you want. But I recommend you don't. She got married. They got married. She came to me about three years later. And she came humbly. And she just said, I wish I would have listened. Our marriage is broken. He was really never a true believer. I've learned the hard way. And I wish I could tell Christians who think they know better than what the scripture advises. I wish I could tell them now. After all this year, these years and brokenness and heartache. Because at first there was a soft wind blowing. They're in love, man. The birds are singing. The grass is growing. 
The flowers are blossoming. I can't see any storms on the horizon. But storms will come, and there will be often a headwind. And will that relationship, or will that path that you are pursuing, if it's contrary to the counsel of God, will it sustain? Scripture says, Blessed are those who walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. And of course, the reverse is also true. Blessed are those who walk in the counsel of the godly. Now, it's true also that God will use storms to pursue rebellious people. I, I am I'm convinced that part of the reason was not only for Paul's um, testing, but to give Paul a chance. He's going to shine in this story. And many people are going to be able to come to know Christ because of this storm. And I've seen God use storms to chase people who won't listen to Him. There are some who are just strong-willed, hard-headed people. And there will come a time when God will just let a person go, make rebellious choices, make his, let his own people do dumb things. Like Jonah, again. Jonah, go to Nineveh. No! I'm going to go hang out in Spain. I want a vacation. And so he bought a ticket. He went down to Joppa. He got on board a boat, and God didn't stop him. But there came a time when God intervened and sent a storm to get his attention. That didn't work. And this guy was hard-headed. So God sent a fish. That worked only after three days while he was in the belly. Then finally he said, Okay, I give up. Uncle! And I cried out to God, he said. God does that because we have a natural tendency to choose second best when God wants first for us. We think we know better than God. And, you know, we can make choices and God will let us go for it. God will let us pay the consequences often. But there comes a time when He'll chase us. He'll pursue us. You might be out of fellowship with God. You might neglect quiet time. You might not read your Bible. You might not come to church. And you might slowly find yourself falling away from a walk with Him. And God will let you do it. God won't rearrange the stars so that you walk out one night in a backslidden state and the stars say, Stop. God could, but He doesn't. He doesn't hang four billion watt speakers from the moon and say, Hey, you, get your attention. He'll let you go. But there will come a time when God will send a storm to get your attention. There's nothing like a storm to do it. All of a sudden, pinned against the wall, we're all ears. You know. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. Jonah in the belly of a whale. That beautiful testimony tonight, you know, of uh, having a gun to your head. And he said, and I prayed. And I bet... I bet that prayer was perhaps the most sincere prayer ever prayed. (laughs) And understandably so. And we're going to see how this storm affects this group of people as well. Now we go on, it says, uh, verse 16. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. And when they had taken it on board... They used cables to undergird the ship, fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands. They struck sail, and so they were driven. What they did is they would take cables, put it under the ship, so that the planks of the ship wouldn't come unglued and break apart. There's a way to keep it going. It was a tough storm. They just let it go. They put up sail. They were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, 
The next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now you hear the word tackle and you think it's just the implements to uh, the rigging of the ship. But the word in Greek means basically anything that was loose. There was a table, there was a net, there was a CD player. Of course, they didn't have those. But anything, they just throw them overboard. They were lightening the load. Now go on a little further and look at verse 38. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. They threw the wheat into the sea? That's the whole purpose this boat is sailing to Rome. It's a wheat ship from Alexandria, Egypt. It's taking grain to Rome. These are merchants on board, man. These guys make their living taking that grain to port and getting money for it. But in a storm, you are no longer a businessman. You are a survivor. It's the life of the wheat. Throw out the wheat. You know, let it get drenched. Toss it overboard. i never forget one time I was uh, water rafting in, in the springtime in California, river rafting. Now, it wasn't, don't get the idea that it was like this grant, you know, on television, the helmets and huge rafts and like the Colorado River. This is kind of like an easy river. And yet for me, I'd never done it before. And we got into some tough spots and we had these kind of funky little rafts that wouldn't do very well in the water. And, you know, I was trying to be Joe Sailor going down. The, and, and we got into a tough spot. And it was either, you know, my supplies or my life. And the thing overturned and we were caught in the rapids. And uh, my sleeping bag got drenched. My Bible was soggy. My lantern was broken. My backpack was wasted. But I didn't care. I wanted to just find a huge rock and land on it. I was a survivor at that point. I heard a story. In fact, I've told you about Yusuf, the terrible Turk. Champion wrestler in Europe. Came to the United States, won the International Wrestling Champion years ago, before they had planes and used to travel by ship. He demanded that he was paid in gold. And he stuffed it in his pack around his waist. And he'd kind of walk everywhere, and the news would take pictures of him with his gold hanging out. And so he was sailing back to his home in Turkey. Ship got caught in a storm. People were going overboard. Guess what happened to Yusuf? They never saw him. He sunk like a lead weight. He had gold lining his belt. And that gold didn't mean anything to him at that point. At this point, they're throwing everything overboard. Their standards are different. In verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us. I like the way Paul Luke writes. The diminutive, no small tempest. In other words, this thing's huge. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But long after, after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> you know... That would have made him really mad at that point. Don't you hate it when somebody says, told you so. And Paul kind of did that. I told you, you should have listened to me. And have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you, I like this part, take heart. For there will be no not loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. 
And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as he told me. God's messengers are those who have the ability in the midst of the hurricanes and the storms that people have in life to say, take heart. There's hope. And people look to people like that. No one looks for a sourpuss when they're going through struggles. The kind of person, I don't know, man, if you can ever trust God. Man, this, you're really going through a trial. I, I'd start doubting your faith if I were you. Who wants to go to the, hear that? But to hear, take heart. Like the disciples who were sinking as they were going across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, don't you care? Jesus was there. They clung to him because they knew he had the words, the ability to stop it. Or when Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee and they thought it was a ghost and they got afraid, Jesus said, take, take heart. Be of good cheer. It's I. Don't be afraid. Or in the upper room when they were forlorn because they knew that Jesus was going to the cross, Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That's the kind of people that will pick you up and encourage you. Let's go down a few verses and we'll quit for the evening. Verse 26. uh, However, Paul said, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, when the 14th night had come, we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea. About midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing some land. And so they took soundings, and they found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they took soundings again, found it to be 15 fathoms. And fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern, and they prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, Under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. Now they're going to listen to Paul a little more readily at this point. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes off the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, Today's the fourteenth day. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment. For this is your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. What a word of encouragement. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were all encouraged, and they took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. And so they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, and they threw the wheat out to sea. They ate their food, they tossed the rest. There's a few things I want to leave with you as we close for the evening. A few lessons. Number one, and it's just sort of hinted at, it's seen as reading between the lines in this chapter. One day, your life is going to end. One day you're going to die. God has set the time. It is appointed unto man once to die. You have an appointment with God at death. If the Lord doesn't come back in the rapture before that, you are going to die. What is important is that you be concerned with how your life ends. Now, I don't mean by that, how are you going to die? 
What I mean is how you are going to live now so that at the end of your life, when you croak, you'll be able to look back and not have any regrets. You know, Paul lived that way. Paul lived life to such a maximum proportion that he never had regrets. At the end of his life, he said, I fought the fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. And now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. You ought to be concerned with how you live before the Lord now, fully to the max. So there's no regrets, because all of us are going to have our lives end. Roy Lauren said something I wanted to share with you. He said, there is a great danger that the golden years may be filled with cynicism, skepticism, remorse, and regret. This is so because the idealism and exuberance of youth is not always fitted with a perspective or philosophy which understands the true meaning and purpose of life. In other words, what often happens to people is they get involved in non-essentials. They don't emphasize the spiritual things of life. Life just goes on, it passes so quickly, and they look back and they say, I should have lived differently. I shouldn't have done that. And they live in regret. Especially if you're young. If you're young, you have such an advantage. Such an advantage. You can make a decision tonight that comes storm or fair weather, you are going to serve the Lord with all of your heart and not let anything else take priority over that. You can make that choice tonight. Your life will radically change. That He'll be number one in relationships, number one over your career, number one over everything. You can make that choice. And it's important that you do that. Because you're going to pass from this life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. A second lesson, and we may have to close with this one. Don't presume that smooth sailing means you're in the will of God. And when they supposed, because the soft wind blew smoothly, that they have gotten favor, you know, they started going on. Don't suppose that just because it's smooth and things are flowing that you're in the will of God. You can have smooth sailing and go in the wrong direction. Doesn't matter, one person said, how fast you climb the ladder of success if your ladder's up against the wrong wall. You can go in the wrong direction. Now look at Paul's life. His life was anything but smooth sailing. Read his epistles. He had enemies everywhere. They were jealous of him. They were angry at him. They talked behind his back. He was beaten. He was thrown out into the sea. He wrote in one of his epistles, I'm hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Now consider this storm. He wrote a letter to the Romans before this event. This is what he wrote. He said, I am making request if by means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. Did he have a prosperous journey on the way to Rome? Well, in terms of outward prosperity, in terms of absence of adversity, no way. It was tough going all the way. In terms of results, it was very prosperous. But that's probably not what Paul meant. He said he was probably praying for a prosperous journey. And he said, Lord, just get us there. Get us there safely. Get us there quickly. And yet, one thing after another happens. And he was thinking, now wait a minute. Maybe God isn't in this. Maybe I'm not in God's will. And it was then that God appeared to him and said, 
Hey, God appeared to me last night, or an angel of the Lord, and gave me encouragement that I'm going to get to Rome, and not a hair of our head is going to be hurt. A third lesson, we have time for one more, I think. Whatever you go through, you need to come to grips with something that I don't find a lot of Christians coming to grips with. Providence and sovereignty. Meaning God is in charge and God is big enough to let things in your life occur so that he gets the glory and you're benefited for it. All things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Paul was in this storm not because of disobedience, not because he didn't have enough faith, and if he would only had enough faith, he would have been a victor. He was in the will of God. He had lots of faith, and yet he went through lots of hassles. Remember the children of Israel? God gave them a travel itinerary. And you know where God led them out of Egypt? Into a trap. Up against the Red Sea. They were trapped on the right and the left. Behind them were Egyptians. They couldn't get out. God deliberately led them into a trap. Why? To hurt them? No. To show them that there's a way of escape when they couldn't conceive of one. He opened up the sea for them. But God led them to that place that he might demonstrate his glory. And the children of Israel did what any of us would do. We should have just died in Egypt. And they started complaining. And so Moses started praying. Oh, God. And basically God said, be quiet. Now is not the time to pray. It's the time to move. Stretch out your rod over the sea. And God opened it up. And they went through. But God led them there, folks. What about Job? God allowed Job to go through all that he went. And do you remember what Job prayed? He said, oh, that I might find him and bring my case before him. He couldn't find God in his trial. But he ended up by saying, but God knows the way that I will take. In other words, I don't know where he's at. I don't know what he's up to, but he knows where I'm at. He knows what I'm up to. And you'll grow through it. You'll grow through it. You can become better through it. Or you can become very bitter through it. And the Lord knows there are many who have. You can grow through it. I should tell you the rest of the things Job said. He said, I owe that I could find God, that I might present my case before him, but he knows the way that I will take. And when I am tested, I will come forth as gold. In other words, there's a purpose in this pain. God is doing this in his providence and his sovereignty. If you could grasp that, that will revolutionize, guarantee you, your periods of pain. It will change the way you face trials. God has allowed me to come here for some purpose. Lord, don't help, don't let me miss it. Do you remember James chapter 1 where it says, If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all and doesn't hold back. You know that most of us don't realize the context of chapter 1? The context is trials. Count it all joy when you're going through heavy-duty trials, knowing that it will produce perseverance. And then it says, If any of you lack wisdom, ask God. The idea is when you're going through a trial and you have no idea what's happening, you ought to pray, God, give me wisdom not to miss the lesson you're trying to teach me through this. I want to see what you're up to. Teach me to grow. We have 40 seconds left. Time for our last bottom line point on this. The way you face storms of life will reveal who you are. They will reveal your character. Isn't that right? Who you really are is seen when the pressure's really on. All the veneer is stripped. All of the 
if there be any hypocrisy or pseudo-smiles and pseudo-joy, they'll be stripped away when you're really crushed. It'll reveal who you are. Look at Paul, how he really is. The crew looks up to Paul, man. He gets the greatest opportunity. He prays in front of all of them. He gives them words of encouragement. They're encouraged by his words. And later on, people will come to know Christ through him in the same chapter. It reveals who you really are. I want to end by telling you the story of a young man. He ran for legislature in Illinois. He was defeated. He entered business. His business failed because his business partner was a crook. And for many years, 17 years after that, he had to pay off the debt because of his business partner. Then he fell in love and became engaged. And his fiancée died. He entered politics years later, ran for Congress, was defeated by a landslide. He tried for the appointment to the U.S. land office. He failed. He became again a candidate for the U.S. Senate, was defeated. That's enough to make you just say, I quit, man. Right? But eventually, this man scarred by life, Abraham Lincoln, became president. He didn't give up. It's those things that reveal who you really are. Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into trials of various kinds, knowing that it produces perseverance. Now, I admit, the first time I read James, I thought, who does he think he is? Is he nuts? Who's going to say, oh, God, thank you for this trial? Oh, this is great. Hallelujah. That doesn't mean that you praise God for every single thing that happens to you. It doesn't mean that you're walking through the office one day, you tip over a copy machine, it breaks your foot, and right there you go, Oh, God, thank you that my foot's broken. I'm so thankful. It means that you praise God in everything. That's what the Bible says. In everything, give thanks. Not for everything. I don't thank God for people who reject Christ and die without Christ. But I can rejoice in everything. And I can count it all joy that somehow God's going to work out his purpose. I'm going to grow through it if I don't let my heart become bitter. And God's going to show himself really strong, so I better cling on to him. You know, a young lady asked me um, Sunday, she said, well, how do we know when it's really tough? How do we know that God's, you know, really going to keep his word? And and, and how do we know? And I said, well, let, let me ask you this. You're a Christian. She says, yes. I said, what else are you going to do? Where else are you going to go? What other options do you have when you have nothing left? And you've got a promise staring you in the face. All things work together for good to those who love God. Now you can sit there and say, well, I don't know. Or you can say, that's my only life preserver. I'm going to grab onto that thing with a death grip and not let it go. And trust with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding. And He'll direct your paths. Father, we want to thank You. We want to thank you, Lord, for your providence, your sovereignty. I pray, Lord, that we would learn to rest. The Father knows best that there is a God in heaven still on the throne who's very deeply in love with us. I pray, Father, that with that knowledge in mind, things of eternity would govern our lives so that we would never have to look back and regret anything we've done in life as far as wasted years of not serving you. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't learn to be confused when 
there are storms and things aren't smooth sailing. That we wouldn't say that, oh, I must be out of God's will or I must not have enough faith. We learn to see your purpose in it. We learn to look for Jesus walking on the water in the storm. We learn to hear the voice as the angel of the Lord would say, take heart. And Lord, as you reveal our true character to ourselves, I pray that you would give us wisdom, as James prayed for, to not miss your lessons and to be changed by it. For we ask it in Jesus' name.